My name is Susan Lynch. I work in the library here. And on behalf of DLR Libraries, we are delighted to have this Reader's Day programmed by Martina Devlin. Thanks, Martina. We had an absolutely wonderful morning. If you weren't here, you'll be able to listen back on our DLR Libraries podcast page, and it was absolutely brilliant. So we're really looking forward to this afternoon's session with starting off with Luke O'Neill and Anne Casson, and followed by Desert Island Books. Um, just a little bit of housekeeping. We are recording these sessions, so phones off or on silent if you haven't already done that. Our fire exits are the door you came through and either side of the screen here and just if you need a toilet it's just outside just past the cafe on the right hand side so without further ado I'm going to hand you over now to Anne Casson and Luke O'Neill thank you uh, thank you very much Susan um, I'm delighted to be here I'm a uh, um, presenter with RTE Nationwide. I've been in RTE for more years than I care to remember. <laughs> I've had about six or seven jobs, and one of the jobs that I have enjoyed most has been the opportunity to meet interesting people who work and have uh, stories to tell, which brings me nicely to introduce you, Luke. Um, Professor Luke O'Neill from Trinity College. I suppose um, you've become very familiar to us over the last last uh, couple of years, really, Luke, because of your um, openness, your optimism and your clarity of thought when you were taking us through various stages of the pandemic on a regular basis um, on uh, rival broadcasting organisations. Well, I wouldn't work for RTE. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So um, you have lots of uh, achievements to your um, career, uh, but let's just talk a little bit initially about why we're here, which is to talk about your most recent book. It's called To Boldly Go, Where No Book Has Gone Before, A Joyous Journey Through uh, All of Science. Now, I like the irreverence in your title, uh, Luke. Uh, are you a Trekkie? I am a Trekkie. Oh, God, yes. Are we all Trekkies here, I hope? You know, cause <laughs> I think if you're a science fan and you like science fiction, Star Trek is where it all starts and ends for me. And I'm old enough to remember the first series, you know? Yeah. And then, of course, the beautiful Jean-Luc Picard and the next generation, you know? So I'm a big fan. Yeah. And it's a great series, I think, because it's a very hopeful series, mm -hmm. actually, both, both, both eras of Star Trek. It, it, it says the future is going to be all right on Earth. There's a massive federation of all the planets, you know? I think Gene Roddenberry tr tried, tried to aspire to a wonderful world, as it were, in the future. So I like it for that reason as well. You know? But this wasn't the first title you had no. for this book. So go on, tell the group. So, um, <laughs> well, well, the book is an interesting story, and I was saying yesterday, Anne. Um, so I've done other books. By the way, I've written four other books. That's how painful I am, you know? And my last book, uh, the one that was a big seller, was called Nevermind the Bollocks, Here's the Science, right? So that was the title. And that was a reference to the Sex Pistols. And then I was asked to write this book by Penguin in the UK, and they asked me to do a whole new history of science, which is a bit of a tall order, you know? And I'm thinking, oh, how can I write a history of science? And mm. it's been done before and stuff. So anyway, I gave it a go, and then we spent ages trying to get a title. And I wanted to have the title, There Ain't Half Been Some Clever Bastards. <laughs> now, that's an Ian Jury reference, any musos in the audience, you know? I thought that, that might be a link back to Nevermind the Bollocks. But yeah. um, in the end, they said, no, we're not going to use the word bastard in the title. So the editor, Con Brown, he, he came up with the, uh, the Bowley Go, where no book has gone before. And uh, 
you know, music is a thread and it's a, a passion of yours. We'll talk about it a little bit later, um, referencing there Ian Drury and also a bit of an endorsement there from fellow lead singer in a band that some of us might know, Bono, <laughs> yes. who uh, says at the back of the book, uh, in science and medicine, there were, if science and medicine were a theme park, Luke O'Neill is the best company on the wildest rides. Serious and fun, expansive and detailed, a disruptive professor in his own class. Now, how do you... I wrote that. Did no, you? Uh, okay. <laughs> I didn't actually know. He, he did actually say that. I was very grateful to Bono, yeah. So um, how I got to know him is interesting. So my younger son, Sam, was in school with Bono's son in St. Andrews, Eli Houston, you see, and they're big mates from the age of 11 or 12. And I met Bono a couple of times at the parent-teacher things in the school, you know? Oh, here. And his wife, Ali, as well, you know? Got to know him a little bit. And then he's... I've, had, I've met him a few times now, and he's very into science. Bono, he loves science, actually. And this whole idea about a disruptive professor, I mean, is, is the love of science, is the curious mind, is part of it being a disruptive yeah, spirit? very much so, yes. And in fact, one thing in the, the book tries to do is to say scientists are pretty strange and, and interesting people. To make progress in science, you must be disruptive because mm -hmm. you must have new ideas that go against the orthodoxy, say, or, or challenge the current knowledge, and then you move things forward. So all, all the little sort of quirky stories of all the scientists in the book, it reveals they're all pretty disruptive people, you know? And how did you um, start out in science? There is a, a segment in the book about your interest being sparked at Christmas time. And can you tell us how you were first drawn to science? I can't, indeed. Yeah, well, I suppose like many of us, um, it begins with our teachers in school. That was a big thing for me. And, and, and in primary school, I remember getting into science. It wasn't the only thing I was interested in, but it was triggered in school. And then when I was 12, my mother gave me a chemistry set for Christmas. Anybody got a chemistry set? Remember these chemistry sets? So my mother gave me this chemistry set, and I'm in my bedroom, and I'm following the manual and measuring bits of this and bits of that. I got bored, right? Yeah. So I decided to put all the chemicals in one tube. And there was, the, you know, methylated spirits. There was this other thing. I put it over the burner and it exploded, right? And it, the ceiling then had a black splat on oh, it, right. right? My mother came running up the stairs. What have you done? You're blowing up your bedroom. She said, you know, and that black splat, I, I, was, I did a thing for RTE last year. It was called, uh, you know, the, the, you know, you go back to the house you lived in. That series, oh, you know, yes, keys yes, to my yes, life. Yes, 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 yes. And they took me back to that bedroom in Bray, from Bray. And the black splat was still there. No way. I'm not joking you, in the bedroom. And the guy who owns the house now says, so I've tried to paint over that, he said, you know, for years, it, keep, it keeps coming through. So that, that was, that was my, the start of my journey. Okay, to, my first experiment was blowing up my own bedroom. I like the sound of that. Yeah. But in, um, as, a, as a young adult, um, a 20-year-old, you're doing research into Crohn's disease. That sparks another interest for you. Um, was it in relation to, is your interest in immunology and that born out at that stage or does that develop later? Well, I, I then go and decide to do um, science in university. Now, much to my mother's upset, I got into medicine, right? Ooh. And I changed my mind. Remember the CAO? Yeah, yeah. I changed my mind. Enough points to do medicine. I changed and did, and did science. And my mother said, ah, this is ridiculous. You should be becoming a doctor, you know? So, my son, uh, the doctor. Well, I mean, exactly, <laughs> it's that kind of thing, you know? And for some reason, I don't, I don't do medicine. I'll do science instead. And then I began doing science. And then I got into biology was my passion anyway. And then I decided to do biochemistry. Now, biochemistry is the chemical nature of life, and all the chemicals really intrigued me in living systems. And in my fourth year then, as we all, anybody who's been to college will know, you do a project, mine was on Crohn's disease. Right. And it really got my attention then, because I thought, well, if I can do a bit of research 
about what's going wrong in the body in Crohn's disease. It'll be interesting scientifically, but it might help get a new treatment for that disease. And this is 1984. At that time, Crohn's was a disastrously bad disease. Very poorly managed, high-dose steroids, surgery, you know. People died of Crohn's in their 30s. Now, since then, there are treatments. It's been mm -hmm. fantastic to see that progress. But at that time, I thought this could be interesting. And then the immune system, of course, is out of control in Crohn's and attacking your own digestive system. And that got my imagination. And I began working on the immune system. And I became an immunologist because I knew then the immune system is at the heart of many diseases, not just Crohn's. Mm. And then I went to London and worked on rheumatoid arthritis. That's another inflammatory disease where the immune system is out of control. Oh, there's many diseases, in fact nearly every disease we think, involves your own immune system turning on your own body. And it's still a mystery why that is, by the way. So that was, that was the journey I began. And why did you write the book? Money. No, <laughs> <coughs> that's another, I, I suppose it's a strange journey to, to me being a writer in a way, because all my career was as a research scientist in a lab. You know, that's my main passion. Yeah. My main job is working in a lab, remember. I've got 15 people in my lab in Trinity doing research on these diseases. So we work on Parkinson's, for instance, now. But the thing was, I began teaching in Trinity. And in particular, when I arrived in Trinity, um, I, I trained in the UK. I did a PhD in London, worked in Cambridge, and then I came back to Ireland, got a job in Trinity in the, in the 90s, you see. And they, they gave me all these lectures, you see. And I, did, I said, OK, I'm going to have to teach the students. But the ones that got me most was the first year biology lectures. So the first five, if, you, if anybody goes to Trinity and does science, I give them their first lectures in biology, right? Now, this is a bunch of 18-year-olds, 300 of them sitting there in their first week in college. And I kind of learned how to communicate biology to that group, because it's very hard to keep their attention, you know? Mm -hmm. And that was the start of it then. Yeah. And it's no different to this book, by the way. So, so I've, got, I've got a real... Um, sort of uh, interest in communicating anyway to anybody. It can be students, it can be people here, it can be wherever it might be, you know, and then, and then the books naturally kind of followed on from that, I guess. Now, I know in real, you know, you did say in one of the pieces I heard you talk about it, it the book is a little bit like a series of biographies because I yep. suppose science uh, is full of inspirational figures and uh, I, I know we have um, acknowledged, we're going to acknowledge, I suppose, female figures that yep. perhaps may have been overlooked in, um, in the past. And I wanted to talk about those, but the people I'm thinking up, I'm asking you about now are not overlooked at all because you happen to say that your favorite scientist is none other than Florence Nightingale. Yeah. Not a figure necessarily that was overlooked now, but talk to us about, um, her achievements, the importance yeah. of uh, hygiene in nursing, what yeah. she learned in Crimea. So you tell us. I'd love to tell you. I love Florence Nightingale. Her story is really interesting. You've all heard of her, I imagine. You know, But the book, I began writing the book. Okay. And I began thinking, what's the best way to describe science? And actually, it became the story of the scientists and what they discovered and their personal lives and quirks about their mm. lives. So the book is really a series of stories of scientists. And the message being, scientists are human like everybody else, there's all this rivalry and competition, they get things wrong sometimes, there's fraud. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a human activity science, you see. And then now Florence Nightingale is, the, is, is one of the best examples. So, so she was a very interesting person. Her father made sure she got an education in maths. Now, in those days, the women didn't get taught maths or science at all. They were taught like embroidery or something, you know? And, and she got a great grounding in maths, right? Decides to get into medicine, doesn't become a doctor, becomes, and, and in those days, nursing wasn't really a profession, you know? And then she ends up in the Crimea, as you may know, brings a, a group of nurses with her to the Crimea, including a couple of Irish nurses, by the way, interestingly, mm -hmm. and her aunt, she brings her aunt with her 
always go somewhere with your aunt is the message here. And, and the aunt and her turn up and she realizes pretty quickly that all the men are actually dying of infections, not on, on the battlefield, right? Because there was awful hygiene, there's overcrowding, there's cholera, typhus, all these various things. And she was reading about the germ theory that yeah. it was emerging at the time. A German scientist called Robert Koch, he had come up with these, and Pasteur in Paris, and she's reading all that, right? And then she sends um, the, the messages back to London saying all the men are dying of infection. And they wouldn't believe her. And the politicians kept saying, no, that can't be true. Our hospitals are fine. And she began sending them data. And she was actually a very good statistician, mm. interestingly. And she becomes the first female fellow of the Royal College of Statistics because she was recognized for her statistical power. What I love most of all about it, there's two things that I love about her as well. So one is she's sending all these graphs and data back to London and the men can't read the graphs. So she decides to do a pie chart. You know these pie charts? Yeah. And she mm -hmm. was the first person to use pie charts really effectively because the men now could see a, you know, this whole area is black because they're all dying, you know, this kind of thing. You know? And she gets credit for making the pie chart the thing. But the other thing I love about her is she had a pet owl and she kept an owl in her jacket. And when she was in a meeting and some man was annoying her, she produced the owl, you see. And then I got the fact. So that's like a little quirky thing about it. And then goes, then goes back to England and she founds the science mm -hmm. and, the, and the whole nursing begins to grow because of her. She writes a famous book, Notes on Nursing, and that's the foundation of nursing. So it's a great example, I think, of him. And uh, another well-known um, uh, female scientist uh, in conjunction with her husband, Marie Curie. Yep. Um, I mean, I remember reading about her when I was uh, a teenager and, and the, a lot of the details around her life, the fact that she wore a brown dress for her wedding and all of those kind of things stuck with me, her dedication. And um, so her achievement along with her husband was, was the discovery of the some elements. That's isn't right. That right, exactly. And the ap application of radioactivity. So maybe you share yeah. a little bit about what that led to in terms of beating cancer. Yeah, well, again, her father uh, made sure she got an education. Yeah. The point of education is clear here. You know, the, the, re the reason why there weren't many women in science was they weren't getting access to science. They were excluded from it, really. You know? She got a great education. Her and her sister actually got a great education. She goes to Paris, becomes a chemist, discovers these new elements. She names one of them polonium yeah. from Poland. Yeah. Very proud Polish person, mm -hmm. you know. She marries Pierre. Mm -hmm. Her name was Marie Sklodowska Curie. She never used the name Curie, interestingly, in her own life. She used, she used her maiden name, you know. And then, of course, someone said, and she wins the Nobel Prize with her and Pierre. They win it together. And someone said, Pierre's greatest discovery was Marie. <laughs> you know. But the reason why she's a fascination for all kinds of reasons. One is, she, as you said, she, she turns her wedding dress into her lab coat. All through her life, her lab coat was her wedding dress, which is interesting, isn't it, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, another quirky thing, when she was back in Poland, she falls in love with this young man, but the trouble was uh, uh, his family were rich and they wouldn't allow them to marry, right? And she then goes to Paris and meets, meets um, Pierre and marries him. And there was a statue put up to her in Warsaw, and this guy never married, and he was, he was always yearning for marry, and he would go to the statue every day and sit there. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's There's a yeah. movie in this, isn't there? But, um, but the, thing is that the radium's interesting. So she realizes pretty quickly this radioactive stuff is quite dangerous. She, she yes. spots this, you know? Yeah. And then she wonders would it kill tumors, right? And they try it on a couple, her and her husband, they try it on, on skin, rare skin diseases, and, and it burns, you see. And it would burn off a skin lesion, and then they begin to use it for cancer. And that's the beginning of radiotherapy. Mm. And now we know that's a key thing that people use to treat cancer is radiotherapy. So. But ultimately, did she not leave herself exposed to too much radioactivity she did. herself? So well, her, her lab mm. books are still radioactive, incredibly. They're in these lead boxes, mm. you know? 
And um, it, took, it took a while to realize that radioactivity was really dangerous, yeah. actually. So that, that took another 10 or 15 years after her, she discovered radioactivity. She coined the term radioactivity as well, by the way. So yeah. her lab books are still radioactive. And she herself dies of aplastic anemia, which she probably got from the radioactivity. Yeah. So, so she died for her science, kind of, is the way to think but, of it. But uh, little known fact, I didn't realize that her own daughter became a very eminent scientist in her own right, yep. Irene. That's right. Yeah, but, but first of all, Mary wins two Nobel Prizes. Yeah. I mean, that's painful, isn't it? Imagine someone in two Nobel And then her daughter wins the Nobel Prize for science as well, about 30 years later. So there's three Nobel Prizes. And the, and the other thing to mention, I can go on about this all day, obviously. She gives her prize money away to the French uh, government to buy machines for soldiers on the battlefield for x-rays. Isn't that amazing? She gives the money away. So she was that kind of person. And then later in life, she said, um, they asked her about this, about mm. the fact that she discovered radioactivity and it can be used for cancer. And she went, oh, that wasn't my intention, she says. I, I was just doing science. I discovered these radioactive things and that was great, she says, but then, then we realized it could have an application. And that's what science is, actually. You should be just doing stuff out of interest and making interesting discoveries. And then there could be applications after, you know. If she went looking for something to cure cancer, she mightn't have found it, you know. Yeah. It was a bit of serendipity and a bit yeah. of kind of, you know. I mean, I wanted to come to that, but you're already hitting off it, the sense that uh, you think of science as rational and straight lines and um, very regular and logic, to quote Dr. Spock, yeah. um, famous Trekkie. Um, but there is a hit and miss aspect to it, isn't yeah. it? There's yeah. this trial and error, there's serendipity, there's discovering things almost by accident, am I right? There is, yes. That of, often advances happen through some bit of luck, is the way to put it, I guess. Yeah. You know? and, and the, but the thing is, you've got to be prepared when the lucky thing happens to capitalise on the luck. The best example of it is Alexander Fleming. Okay. He discovers antibiotics. Now, that's probably the biggest contribution to human health ever because it saves hundreds of millions of lives. Penicillin is what he discovers. Now, he's, he's working on bacteria in London. His wife is Irish, by the way, but you never knew that. Nope. And she was an Irish speaker and used to speak Irish in the home with Fleming. Isn't that great? So, little quirky story there. But anyway, uh, he was a filthy guy in the lab. He was always leaving the bench dirty and stuff. He didn't really look after it. And he would leave the lid off his bacterial cultures, you see. And one day, he leaves his window open, goes on holidays, comes back after a week, and he notices a mold is growing in the bacterial culture and killing the bacteria. And he wonders, I wonder what that is. Mm. Right? Now, in the lab beneath his, was an, another Irish guy. See, we've got to talk about the Irish. Another Irish guy called Latouche. Now, we you know the name Latouche. It's a famous name. There was one of the Latouches was working on asthma, right? That was his area. Goes to the same institute as Fleming. He was collecting cobwebs in London, thinking that cobwebs cause asthma attacks. And he was growing these cobweb things in his lab. The fungus had got trapped in the cobweb in his lab and blew out the window, you know? Right. So, in other words, penicillin was discovered by an Irish guy, really, because if, if, if Latouche wasn't there, <laughs> The stuff wouldn't have blown out the window. Is that amazing? Yeah, and you mentioned Louis Pasteur. Yeah. Uh, whose name was given to the process of pasteurization. Yep. And talk to us about about him and his own uh, personal uh, inspiration, I suppose, to go investigating all of this in yes. terms of his own life. Well, again, he's a, these are all famous immunologists, yeah. kind of, so they're yeah. in my area. You know? So Pasteur, three of his children die of diphtheria or cholera, right? He had five kids, three die. And that got him. He said, well, I don't want, you know, what's going on here? And then he begins to work on the germ theory. He collaborates with Koch, the guy in Germany, and he becomes a very famous sort of um, 
immunologist, you might call it, devises the first vaccines for things like rabies mm. and anthrax. Mm. He calls them, he coins the term vaccine, Pasteur. This would be great for a pub quiz, wouldn't it? Who coined the term vaccine? Pasteur. And he calls, you know why I call them vaccines, Anne? The reason why you use the word vaccine was the very first vaccine was against smallpox. And, and remember this, Jenner was using yeah. cowpox, yeah. you see. Yeah. So vaccus means cow. So vaccine comes from cowpox. And he call, in, in honor of, um, of Jenner, uh, Pasteur calls them vaccines, you see. And then he coins that term. And he invents about five vaccines. Again, a big contribution to human health. But he's also very important for the whole germ theory and the idea that, that diseases are caused by microscopic creatures. Mm. At the time, that was radical. And lots of doctors didn't believe it. How can diseases be caused by something you can't see, they'd ask, mm. you know? And then the likes of Pasteur prove it, that cholera is caused by a tiny bacteria you can't see. What's the difference between a vaccine and an inoculation? It's similar. Yeah, the, the term inoculation kind of means injecting something into you. Mm. That's the, where the word inoculate comes from, mm. or inoculum. And then very importantly, while I'm at it, another Irish connection. Lady Mary Workley Montague, this woman, right? Goldfish. Now, she um, was English, but she spent time in Ireland. And she almost got married to an Irish lord called Clotworthy was his name. Strange name, Clotworthy. And I wondered, did he work on blood clotting? But he didn't. His name was Clotworthy. But she ditches old Clotworthy and marries a guy called Montague. And they go to Turkey. This guy becomes a diplomat in Turkey. And when she's in Turkey, she notices the locals were using uh, fluid off smallpox blisters to stick into someone else to protect them from smallpox. Mm. And that was called inoculation was the word used mm. for that. And then she goes back to England and they start using that method in England. The trouble is, some people, you gave them smallpox because the, the fluid had yes. live virus in it, yeah. you know. And so it was never fully adapted. But of course, Jenner reads about her work, right. realizes if I use cowpox, which is a weakened form of smallpox, that's a safer way to do it. Cowpox won't give you smallpox, but the similarities between the two, it'll protect you against smallpox. So Jenner owes a debt to, uh, to Lady, Lady Mary, who brought that back from Turkey. And um, vaccination, obviously, it's been part of our... Um Oh, it's been part of the whole COVID story for the last while. And you explained so much to us about it and the, the um, importance and so forth. I'm coming to my, my question now in the sense that bringing us up to date with your uh, heroes, Carolyn, I can't pronounce her surname, but Carico. Hungarian lady who has done all the work with uh, RNA. Yep. So maybe tell us a little bit oh, about yeah. her work yeah. and how important she is and her achievements. But also, I suppose one thing that I've kind of glided over, the obstacles and the that she has overcome yeah. to uh, to reach where she has yeah, I, me I mentioned her very briefly in the book because I wrote the book before she won the Nobel Prize yeah. which she won this year but I met her in 2004 right at a big conference in America I that's the first time I came across her and what she was trying to do was she was trying to use this thing called RNA mm. as a new medicine now RNA is a natural thing it's in your body RNA makes proteins and then she was wondering, could I use RNA to make proteins that could be useful therapeutically? And she begins going after cancer initially, actually. And she starts using RNA to make bits of a tumor and getting the immune system then to fight the tumor through that process. It sounds pretty complicated. And nobody believed her. And she was shunned. I mean, she was vilified. And I met her at this conference. And um, she had a talk on making RNA effective, really, was what her talk was about. And I asked her, why would you bother working on RNA? So we were all asking her. You can use proteins anyway, there's other ways to do it. And she was passionate about using RNA as a therapeutic, right? Fast forward then, they're making these vaccines early on. It's about six, seven years ago, even before COVID, they're okay. testing them. Yeah. And then when the pandemic hits, to make a normal vaccine, a regular vaccine, would have taken two or three years. 
right? You can make RNA very quickly. Mm. And because of the emergency, mm. we needed a vaccine quickly. That's why they use RNA, because okay. it's a faster process. And secondly, you can make it in a test tube, actually. The, the flu vaccine, in case people don't know, is made in chicken eggs. Did you know that? They inject. You could never make a billion doses of a vaccine in chicken eggs. You see, it would be too difficult. Whereas you could make a billion doses of the RNA vaccine. Now, all of this culminates in her story getting told. She left Hungary with $150 in her daughter's teddy bear. Because in those days, you couldn't leave Hungary mm. because it was a communist time. Mm. You couldn't bring money out. Mm. So she smuggles money out, ends up in America, gets a job in a lab. And then she has a really tough time. Nobody will believe her. She can't raise grant money, all this kind of thing. And look what happened in the end. Mm. And so it's a really worthy Nobel Prize because it was her doggedness yeah. and her fighting the orthodoxy, saying it won't work, and keeping going. At one time, her husband calculated that she was making uh, $1 an hour. If, if you, her salary and the amount of time she was spending in the lab, you know? But talk about a commitment so, to something. So how does her role play into the success of getting the COVID vaccine so quickly? Because at the beginning of the pandemic, we were told, oh, it would take, you know, it's eight, 18 months if it was super fast, super fast, super fast. And of course it came out much quicker than yep. you'll recall of that. So does, did she have a role in fact? Oh yeah, very, very well, okay. again, she, she eventually goes to a, all the companies wouldn't work with her either, by the way. She was asking drug, like they, they're the ones who make vaccines and they wouldn't work with her. Finally, this company, by Tech in Germany, you may have heard of them. Oh. She takes, they take her technology and they do a deal with Pfizer, a huge big company. And Pfizer had the wherewithal then to make the vaccine, you see. But it was her technology that went into that vaccine. So in other words, if she hadn't invented the RNA thing, there wouldn't be any RNA vaccines. And we would have been waiting then for the usual way to make vaccines, you see. So, and then the other thing that happened, as you all probably know, is there was huge efficacy in the trial. Now, because it's a brand new thing, there was a 90,000 patient trial done by Pfizer. The biggest trial ever done, right? The reason being, it's a new thing, we've got to make sure it's safe. Mm. And then secondly, is it effective? And there was 95% protection, I'll never forget it. It was November um, 2021, if you remember this. And I was at, in the Explorium doing a thing for RTE, and the 6-1 came in to interview me, and I said, this is incredible, because you have 95% efficacy mm. with this thing. And I knew then we're going to get out of it. That, that, that was the day, actually, right. when I realised I can now see the light at the end of the tunnel. Mm. If that hadn't worked, it could have been another year, two, three years out, you know, yeah. with lockdowns and all those things to protect people, you see. So, so in other words, that, that was a great moment. But she gets the credit and wins the Nobel Prize. Her and a guy called Drew Weissman, her collaborator, mentioned him as well. They get the credit mm. for inventing the RNA technology. So it's great. Are you concerned about COVID now? It no. hasn't really left us? Well, it, it's another virus. It's like the flu. The flu jumped into humans probably in the year 1200, for instance, you know. And that causes respiratory disease. HIV, as remember AIDS, that jumped from primates into humans in the 1930s, mm. you see. So every so often a new virus comes along to afflict us. And SARS-CoV-2 is now among us. It's another virus. And it causes respiratory disease. The reason why we needn't be as worried about it is the vaccines are there to protect the vulnerable and your own immune system, of course. Mm. I mean, remember, we evolved immune systems to fight infections anyway, you see. The only concern about COVID now really is long COVID. Okay. There's something malignant about this virus that causes persistent symptoms that flu doesn't cause, you see. And it was never just about people living or, or dying. That, that, that was, that, the initial fear was death, obviously, especially in older people. That was our number one concern. But that wasn't the only concern. The second concern is persistent symptomology. And this particular virus seems to cause that more frequently than other viruses. Right. And that's a concern. Yeah. And people, I guess people know about long COVID. Yeah. People have it even. Yeah. Yeah. It goes on for months and months. It's fatigue, it's brain fog, yeah. it's all that stuff. Yeah. And, we, and we don't know what's going on there. Mm. And my lab now works on, we all, 
we need to find out what's going on with long COVID. Mm. So my lab now is working on that. You see, to try to figure out what's happened to the immune system here. Yeah. We, we think what's happened, by the way, is the immune system is triggered. And then for, in some people, it keeps burning away, even though the virus is gone. Right. The immune system is still there and it's making you feel tired. Because when you get infected, you feel tired anyway. You know, it's the same symptoms mm. as if you're infected. Mm. So we think so something's gone off kilter yeah. here in the immune system. And we'd love to correct that. It'd be great if we could find a reason for that. You know? Just a couple of things. I know we're kind of slightly off the book, but it's, it's so interesting talking to you. You know, you're, you're catapult to stardom. You're such a natural communicator. Your inherent optimism, your curiosity and the ability to communicate. You know, for somebody like me who interviews, it's, it's so energising to hear people who are passionate um, about their subject matter. Um, but there was a downside, uh, not necessarily to the fame, but to being... Uh, pursued and followed around your workplace, mm -hmm. you know, for what you were saying about vaccines. Yeah. So how did you cope with that and how do you review that now? Yeah. The main downside was my wife going, get off the telly, you Egypt. That was the main <laughs> My wife said that. Um, <laughs> remember Father Ted? There's yeah. that Egypt on the telly again. So I kept getting asked to go on. It was strange out of that period because they kept asking me to go on, you see, yeah. including RTE. And, um, yeah. and of course, on News Talk, I had been on News Talk with Pat Kenny since 2013 every week and nobody gave him monkeys, you know? <laughs> <coughs> in fact, when I began, and Pat said to me then, I think it was, so about three months in, say maybe April time of 2020, Pat said to me, um, let's go on three days a week. I said, what? Yeah. Three days a week. It's a lot of talking. <laughs> They'll be sick of me. Well, the fear would be to stop listening if it's the same voice, you know, people stop listening. And all I'm trying to do is keep the information coming, yeah. you know. Now, thankfully, I had many great colleagues, Kingston Mills, you may know Kingston mm. as well, mm. Cleano Farrelly, mm. Cleany Kelly. We all know these names, Sam McConkie as well, yes, remember? Yes, So we all know these people. So lots of us were doing, it wasn't just me. But it got a bit intense, you know. And, and uh, to be asked to go on a lot, and then eventually one of my favourite songs by the Travelling Wilburys. Did you ever hear them? Yep. I'm a big Beatles fan. Overexposed, commercialised. There's a line in that song, handle me with care. You know, so that was in my mind. I was slightly worried that, oh, if I keep banging on, it'll, it'll be counterproductive. That was yeah. a concern. But then, it, it, luckily enough, we managed to get through it and I kept doing it and it was okay in the end, I think, anyway. You know? But then the downside, of course, was the attacks. Mm. And I had seven death threats, for example. And, and I don't mind having death threats, really. It's a bit disturbing, it's obviously. Family as well. But it's the family. My yeah. wife, uh, on our answer phone at work, there were five deaths. We're going to kill your husband. This kind of thing. And then they, they came outside my house one day, about 20 of them with placards. You know? mm. The guards were great, by the way. So the guards had infiltrated them. Now, by the way, it's the same people that we saw the other night in Dublin. You know? Same people, because I recognize some of them. You know? But the, gu the guards came to me and said, oh, we, we, we've infiltrated them. Uh, there's no real danger here. It's unlikely that you're going to get assaulted. Although I did get assaulted once on Grafton Street. I was pulled back by the collar, walking down Grafton Street. Oh you're God. Luke O'Neill, you're selling vaccines, this kind of thing. Um, but then the, the lowest point, I suppose, if I'd call it that, was they came into Trinity looking for me one day with placards, about 20 of them again, with kill Luke O'Neill and, and nooses, right? Now, they went to the neuroscience building because they can't read. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, the... The, the, good, the good sign here was the provost rang me, Paddy, friend of God, I said, Luke, you need a bodyguard. And they gave me a bodyguard for four months, paid by Trinity, a guy called Jer from Talla, ex-Irish Army. And okay. he was there for me. When I was out, out in public, I was going to News Talk or RT, he'd come with me, you know, right. and had his phone number. And he was built great, you know. Yeah. He, had, he, he had black shades. <laughs> and the women in my lab said, invite Jer up again to the lab. You know, <laughs> Um, and I got to know him very well. And he said to me one day, oh, Luke, he says, uh, my wife loves the fact that I'm your bodyguard. Mm. She's a big fan. 
Mm-hmm. And I said, thanks very much. She said, yeah, she calls me Kevin Costner. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but not to downplay, I mean, I realise this is, this is unusual. I mean, the times we live in, all I was saying was take the vaccine, right? Mm. And I'm getting death threats and getting malignant people mm. coming after me. And of course, social media, that was a huge attack all the time. Yeah. Now, what it did to me in the end was, and I doubled down. I wouldn't let them win, you see. And I, made it, I think it's very important to counter that with my opinion. Now, now you can d- agree with me or not, I don't mind, you know. But I'm a scientist, I was given the evidence all the time. And that, had to be, that, that information had to keep coming against this. Because you can't let them win, was mm. my view overall, you know. Mm. And, and that was how I approached it. Mm. And mercifully, mm. it's, I still get a bit of it now and again, mind you. But, um, yeah. but mercifully, the intensity went out of it. The, they, they moved on to other targets, let's put it that way, I think, mm. you know. Well, I mean, I think objection to uh, the COVID vaccine was not the only territory. There's been objection to MMRs and so yeah. forth uh, f- for some time. Um, I was... Uh, the mind, right? Because yeah. I, I asked you... Yes, We had a little chat on the phone, very sh- short chat on the phone yesterday, um, just to talk a little bit about today. And the one thing that struck me was that I, I um, rang... Luke at four o'clock, that was the schedule, right? And he says, Alan, I've just been on the phone. I've just been doing Zoom with uh, and that for an hour with this people in UL. And I was thinking, oh my God, you're probably really tired. Do you want to talk to me? I said, keep our little chat very short. And you, I kept you on for an hour, energy. didn't I? You <laughs> well, you're asking me the right questions. No, your and energy <laughs> is, is uh, I- I- incredible. Anyway, I'm digressing once again. But I said, what area would you like to talk about? And... Uh, you said uh, the mind, yeah, right? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. So the mind is a mystery. So I'm going to ask you a few things like, what is the mind? What's the difference between the brain and the mind? What are, do we un- know not about? What do we not know about the mind? And then the application of your own work uh, yep. as to how there may be solutions or yep. treatments for mind or brain diseases. So exactly. maybe talk to us yeah. a little bit about that. Well, the, the book, it's all of science, you see, and eventually there's a chapter on neuroscience and the mind and the brain and all that area. That's maybe the 10th chapter. And it's a fascinating topic because it's the biggest mystery in science, how the mind works. That's the big unknown of, in all of science. Because what's memory? What's subconsciousness? You know, that, all that sort of complexity of neurons and all that kind of thing. It's, it's a very interesting scientific question. And in fact, um, when I began as an immunologist in the mid-80s, our knowledge of the immune system was pretty primitive then, actually. You know? yeah. Since then, we've discovered a huge amount about the immune system. And we have treatments for many things like Crohn's and rheumatoid. We haven't cured them, but there's better treatments because of our knowledge of how the immune system works. And in fact, much of my research was finding the component parts. Like, I'm actually a biochemist, really, which means I get the chemicals. And I, in my lab, we discovered a key on switch for the entire immune system, which hadn't been seen before. So we know a lot about the immune system now. The brain is like 1984 for the immune system, if you know what I mean. Now, if we fast forward, what was that, 35 years, we will understand a lot more about the mind, simply because intense research is happening all over the world, including in Trinity. There are many scientists trying to address this big, unanswered question of what is the mind. And then it's important scientifically, because we like to know how the mind works. We know it's about neurons in the brain. We know it's about they communicate through these things called neurotransmitters, yeah. is what they call them. You may have heard of dopamine. We're all yeah. looking for the dopamine high. Yeah. You may have heard of serotonin and other neurotransmitters. Yeah. They connect neurons, and then they cause certain behavioral changes. They affect our mood. So there's, there's the serotonin hypothesis for depression, for instance. Yeah. And when you take an SSRI, a drug for depression, mm. that elevates serotonin. 
And that seems to relieve some of the symptoms of depression. But we don't know why. We sit, there's a mystery of what serotonin is doing, you see. So we know some bits. We've got some understanding of some of the bits. But in my area, uh, specifically, there's all these diseases that afflict the brain. Alzheimer's and Parkinson's mm. and motor neuron disease, those three. We've no treatment for them, really. We know Charlie Bird is a great example, isn't he, in a sense? We need to get better treatments for those diseases. It's a desperate need. It's desperate because it's, they're, they're diseases of older people and the aging population. There's going, to be, there's going to be an epidemic of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's just because more people are getting older, right? Now, in my own research, what's going on in Alzheimer's, if you take that as an example, uh, there's a protein building up in a part of your brain called the hippocampus. Yeah. Now, the hippocampus is where you form memories. That's the part of the brain. And the neuroscientists discover that. And I describe that in the book. That was discovered about 50 years ago. Now, this protein, it's called beta amyloid. It's a natural protein in the brain. And for some reason, it begins to form clumps in that part of your brain, right? And guess what? The immune system, whose job it is to get rid of noxious things, the noxious thing might be a bacteria or a nasty clump, right? Mm -hmm. Goes in tries to clear this stuff yeah. and gets very frustrated and then explodes and causes inflammation, which is what we work on in that part of the brain. That kills the neurons and you lose your memory. And we're trying to suppress that inflammatory process to stop that happening. So, so the problem is inflammation then, isn't it? It is, precisely. Yeah. Yes. Now, what, what inflammation is, of course, and Crohn's, rheumatoid, psoriasis, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, they're all inflammatory because they involve the immune system yeah. going in to try to fix things, you see, and try to make things sort of restore things you might say and are we making progress in this regard in trying to address parkinson's motor neuron depression but well, well the big advance as you may all know last year was alzheimer's mm. so, so eli Lilly, that drug company who we work with by the way in my lab as well eli Lilly discovered a way to mop up the beta amyloid and it's an antibody, actually. So antibodies are great things for, for sticking onto stuff, you know. Antibodies stick onto a virus, for example. They made an antibody to beat amyloid, gave it to people. It, it, it cleared up all the, like a sponge in a way, all this beat amyloid stuff. And they got a response. The first time ever in Alzheimer's disease, they slowed down the disease. Now, they slowed it down by about 20%. It doesn't sound like a lot, but it's the beginning now. It's the beginning, and that'll get better, watch. Mm. The next thing they're gonna do with Lily is they're gonna stratify the trial with, if you've high beat amyloid, that's the one you should treat, you know, and then you might see even more efficacy there. So we're seeing the first progress in Alzheimer's. Our stuff is trying to stop the amyloid disturbing your body. So we're one step away from the amyloid, you see. But that could work as well, because the inflammation, you can imagine for a minute, the cells called macrophages that we work on, they're called big eaters, the macrophage means big eater. They go into your brain and try to eat up the amyloid, it's their job. But the trouble is there's so much amyloid, the macrophage explodes in the hippocampus and causes this massive irritation and kills the nerves in that part of the brain. We're turning off the macrophage, my lab, really. You know, to switch that off. And that might work as well, you see. And again, I think what will happen is we'll slow down progression. That, that, we won't cure it. Mm. Mm. The, the ultimate cure will be, mm. why is the beta amyloid there? We'd love mm. to know that, you know. Mm. There could be a vaccine against beta amyloid in the end, which would be marvellous, you know. Now, when you move on then to things like schizophrenia or psychosis mm. or depression, they're much more complicated. That's a disturbance of the mind. And because we don't know how the mind works, we can't really come up with an effective treatment for those things until we understand more about the inner workings of the mind. And then we might be able to figure out what's happening. But by the way, it turns out the genes, it's, it could be genetic, all these things, by the way. The genes that are different in someone with schizophrenia are in the immune system. So again, that's, that seems to involve an immune dysfunction as well, you mm. see. And that's a big advance. And the other thing to mention while I'm at it is depression is probably the immune system as well. 
ask incredibly. Yeah, do you have any thoughts on depression? Like, it, it's, it's, it seems to be something we're a bit afflicted with in this country. Yeah, it's common enough, and well, it's, it's getting more and more common as well. Yeah. And I mean, young people especially, this is the devastating yeah. part of this in a way, you know. Yeah. Again, it's a mystery. I mean, it, it's an imbalance in the neurotransmitters. Mm. Some people respond very well to antidepressants, and they're targeting neurotransmitters, so we know it's some neurotransmitter mm. problem. You know, yeah. you might put it that way. But the big one that got me recently, because I'm an immunologist, was uh, people with rheumatoid arthritis often get depression. It, it goes to the disease. And the theory was, because your joints are sore, that's that going to make you depressed. The pain is making you depressed. Yeah, well, you, 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 yeah. You, you develop depression because you can't, you can't do things you would normally do, right? And it turns out to be that's not the reason. Your joints are very sore. You're making immune molecules that go to your brain to trigger the depression. So it's the immune system that's making you feel depressed. Now, the reason for this is when you get an infection, you will feel a bit depressed during infection. You get under the duvet, you know, stick on nationwide and watch it, whatever it is. But you know what I mean? Depression, maybe that's the wrong word. It's, a it's called sickness behavior, we call this. And that, that's, that's a response to the infection. Get away from the herd. Don't socialize, you know, mm. get under the deal. That, that's a bit like depression. The same molecules that are making you respond that way during an infection are getting overproduced in arthritis and then triggering the same response. The trouble is it's going on, it's chronic. Okay. And now, guess what? Block those molecules could be a brand new way to treat depression. And there's trials happening at the moment to do that. You know? I don't mean to cut you across because I have um, failed to take note of the times <laughs> that were on here. And it is <coughs> so important that you in the audience uh, get the chance to ask questions of Luke. So uh, does anybody have a question? And are we just, do we have a microphone or? Yeah, okay. So does anybody like to put a question to Luke? O'Neill, lady over here, the second row. Um, I would just like to ask you, Luke, this book, would that be suitable for 12, 13-year-old? It would, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's kind of aimed at adults in a way. Now, I don't mean that that's a bit dodgy. It's just uh, it could be slightly technical here or there, you know? But, but a 12-year-old who likes science, definitely, you see. And it, it's written for everybody, the book, by the way. I mean, one thing I tried to do, one of the big thrills during the pandemic for me was The Sun interviewed me a lot, and that's the exact newspaper I wanted to get the information into. I wasn't aiming at Irish Times readers, you know? So, and, and this book is for everybody, because obviously, as Anna said, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an enthusiast about science. I want everybody to get into science, really, you know, and to make it very accessible. And the best part of that was, um, the Sun story was, uh, towards the end of the, the lock, second lockdown, I got a great message off a guy. He said, I work for Irish Rail. I'm in a van with me mates, going around fixing things. He says, we read you in the Sun every day, and we want to thank you. He said, because I've got men here who left school at the age of 12. <laughs> reading about science in the sun. And that, that, was, that was such a thrill for me yeah. to see that, you know? Lovely. So, so anybody really, and 12, I've, I've, got other, I've got a book for kids though as well, the great Irish science book, that's aimed at 12 year olds specifically. But if a 12 year old is interested in science, that, that I'd hope they would really get something out of the book, you know? And especially the human element. And one way I describe it is, um, I say science is like the best reality TV show ever for me, mm. full of all these characters and rivalries and all that kind of thing. And, and young people like, like that kind of stuff, don't they? So, so I hope it's accessible to them. Um, thanks, Luke. Um, just about the vaccine for COVID, there was a rumour saying that a lot of it was tested on males and that it didn't really agree with the female body and systems and, yeah. you know, um, reproductive side. Just wondering what your thoughts are on that yeah. or was it based on fact even? It's a very important general question anyway, to be honest. Historically, trials are often done just in men, which is stupid because... 
they mightn't work in women, for example, or maybe work better in women than men. And in fact, this sex difference in the immune system is a fascination. And in Trinity, we've got a big interest in this. There's a conference next year on sex differences in the immune system, you see. And so one big example, before I answer the, about vaccines, lupus, that disease, mm -hmm. is nine times mm -hmm. more common in women than men, and we don't know why. Mm -hmm. you know? Crohn's disease is five times more common in men than women. Isn't that a fascination? So we'd love to know that. Now, when it comes to testing new medicines, now they have to do men and women. That's kind of ordained. And those vaccines were tested in women as well. They were. And the numbers, it may have been slightly more men than women overall, but 90,000 people, you know, a, a fair percentage of that was women. Now, of course, the concern with women was menstrual disturbance, and that, that became a feature of, that, of this vaccine, as you may know. And that was, they saw that, and they were, what does this mean? And they looked into it very closely, and it wasn't concerning, let's put it that way. You know, and there hasn't been any evidence that, that women have been especially susceptible to any harm here. Now, remember... Every, and I kept saying this, every medicine will have a side effect. Aspirin, paracetamol, and vaccines. A small number of people will see a side effect to these vaccines. Mm. And in the end, what happens is the FDA and the AMA in Europe, they do a risk-benefit analysis. Do the benefits outweigh the risk, and then they'll approve mm. it. And it can be a drug, it can be a vaccine, and with those vaccines, the benefits far outweigh the risk. And especially in women, remember there's a big fear of pregnant women, for instance. The risk from the virus of damaging the fetus is far higher than the vaccine. And that justified then vaccinating pregnant women as well. And that was looked at extremely closely. It, it's always a question of who you trust, I suppose, in the end. Mm. And, and you have to trust the regulators, the FDA and the EMA. They're the ones who are given the data by the drug companies, and then they approve it. They're, they're, their job is to protect us, isn't it? Let's face it, from, from new, new medicines that come along. And, and, th and they decided then that the, 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 risks, the risk-benefit ratio was vastly in favour of benefit for women and men. Anybody else? Gentlemen over here? Hi. Um, you had mentioned a lady who left hungry with $150 in her kid's teddy bear and Pfizer, who's a massively wealthy company, then sold that vaccine. Did that lady become very rich? Did she, she did. get anything back? She did indeed. Yes, yeah, because what happened there was she would have patented it. And then that patent would have gone to BioNTech. And they would have gone on to deal with Pfizer, you know. And then she'd be getting royalties, you see. But she gives her money away, if you look at her closely. And she's been interviewed all over the place. And she's given lots of money away that she's getting. She's not, no interest in money, obviously, all her life, you know. And then the other great example in the book, actually, is Jocelyn Bell Burnell. Did you ever hear that woman? She discovered pulsars. And she should have won the Nobel Prize for that. And our supervisor won it, and not her, which is egregious in this business, you know. Uh, but she gave all her, she's won all these other prizes that are worth more money than them. Um, and she's given all that money as, as, well, as well. So, so sometimes scientists, they, they, they do benefit financially. And in Caraco's case, she's been given this money away. Her daughter, by the way, as part of her story, won a, a gold medal in the Olympics for rowing as well, yeah, you see. So yeah. that's interesting. And before she won the Nobel Prize, she was famous as the mother of an Olympian. Yeah. Mm. But so now she's famous go. for, for yeah. discovering the vaccine. Yeah. yeah. Have we any other questions here? The lady over here. I waited to ask my question because I asked one earlier, and myself, my question is kind of selfish. Uh, in as far as what um, links are you aware of between people having COVID and then afterwards developing atrial fibrillation? Yeah, well, there is a risk of that with any infection, you see, anyway. You get heart involvement. And we now know that the virus infects the heart as well as the lungs, and that will cause things like endocarditis. So that's a feature of the infection, you see. So there is a connection. It's rare enough, though. 
I think the numbers are very small that would go on to develop that. That's kind of like a long COVID thing in a way, you know? Persistent heart problems can be a feature of long COVID in some people as well. And it's just a consequence of the infection process. And then very importantly, remember the vaccine protects against that kind of thing as well. And in fact, the, the last week there was a big study done, people who are vaccinated, much lower risk of those kinds of things, including long COVID symptomology. The reason being the vaccine gets the immune system to stop the virus causing that mischief, if you see what I mean. So, but there is, there is a connection to heart, heart problems. Yeah. I, I was vaccinated. But um, I, uh, the, just a, the second part of it is, do you know of anybody who's specifically working on that? Uh, yeah, lots of people are working on these aspects. I mean, okay. the, the great thing is, one of the COVID dividends, if you want to call it that, is an awakening of interest in post-infectious sequelae, they're called, PASC sometimes. And there's people working on these aspects now, because even though it's rare, it's still common enough. These long COVID clinics, say in Tala, for instance, there's thousands of people going to those clinics, you see. So lots of people are working on those aspects. The other big issue for the long COVID issue is the brain, of course, because the major features fatigue, uh, brain fog, depression, as well. Why is that happening? Can we understand that? So we're seeing lots of new research around these. And then the, 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 the beauty of it is, it'll be relevant to things like Lyme disease, for instance, or flu. You know, but, but Lyme, Lyme disease, as you, as you may know, is another one that's caused by a bacteria. That can have really long-term, awful symptomology. Is that the Lyme, one you, you get know? from ticks? Tick, exactly, on ticks, yeah. And in fact, in Ireland, yeah. There's a, a fair cohort of, of people with long-term yeah. problems from Lyme. You know? yeah. And again, what we find about COVID then could be relevant to long-term symptomology, which includes heart problems, post-infection with Lyme disease, you see. So, so often this happens in science, by the way. And in the book, I kind of mentioned this. There's some big emergency, and then lots of research happens. And there's loads of benefits come out of that then. And, and COVID is like that. The other big benefit, by the way, and is, um, I think you were asking me this yesterday as well, that RNA technology, it mm. works so well in COVID, is now turned to malaria, TB and AIDS. Now, we need vaccines for those three diseases. Two million children die a year from TB still. Isn't that amazing? And we get a good vaccine, it'll stop that, you see. And the traditional vaccines don't seem to work for some unknown reason. We have a new, we have a new way to do it, that's RNA. That could crack it for, for those diseases as well, you see. So all, all those benefits come from, from these kinds of things. Have we any other questions? Well, I have, if there, I have one last question, mm. right? And um, it's, I, I love the word, you, the way you said, a joyous journey through all of science. So you can answer any way, this question any way you want, but what sparks joy for you? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. <coughs> Three points of Guinness. Um, Go on. Uh, music. Music, yeah. definitely joyous. Music. Yeah, yeah. So the, the joy for me, and again, this gets back to sort of our, our young people, really, in school and, 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 and our teenagers, let's call them that, you know. They get turned on by science, you know. I mean, and I was like them. Like, like every child loves dinosaurs <laughs> or astronomy and the wonder of the universe. And, and I was, I, I'm sure you did as well when you were younger. I, I stuck with that. That, mm. that joy never left me, that joyousness as a child in the natural world in particular, never left me. The sea was a fascination for me, and of course, we're in a beautiful spot here, you know? And I learned a lot of it. When I was in Trinity, uh, I did zoology as part of my degree. I was obsessed with aquatic mammals for a while, you know? Like dolphins and seals. I learned all about them and their blubber and how they exist. Yeah. So it's a funny business, isn't it? Now, why did that happen? I don't know. It's, 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 first of all, it's curiosity. 
I'm sure people love Countdown. You know, we all love, curious, we're curious about the world, aren't we? You know, and we love puzzles, you know. Yeah. So the joy of it is just learning something new that's intriguing and then mastering it is a really important part of this as well. Mm. And when you master some skill, then you really feel good about it. Mm. It could be sport, it could be an instrument. It's hard graft, of course, you know. I mean, learning to, learning to play an instrument isn't easy. You all remember that, don't we, piano lessons. But once you He's get through... He's in a band, guys, you know all that. Yeah, that's yeah. With Tony Conley. With Tony Conley, that's <laughs> right. Yeah. The metabolics, as we're called. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but the, joy of, the joy of mastering something is great. And, and in the book, I talk about this thing called ikigai. Have you ever heard this term, anybody? So the, the Japanese have a term, how do you feel fulfilled in your life? How do you feel really alive, right? You need three things to achieve ikigai. One is do something the world needs. Have a purpose, you know? And that can be anything, right? And if you're a scientist, hopefully the world yeah. needs what yeah. scientists do. Secondly, master some skill, right? And thirdly, get paid for it. Actually, it's the third thing. <laughs> if you've all three, you achieve ikigai, you know? So again, that, that's where some of the joy comes from. And then the other thing to say is this, of course, very importantly. Um, I, I, I didn't become an astronomer. I don't care if some distant galaxies exploding. You know? <laughs> Although astronomy is a great science. Mm. I needed to have science that was relevant to people for some reason. So when I worked on Crohn's, that was the jump off. Because yeah. I realized maybe I'll discover something that could be useful to people, especially for these diseases, you see. And, and it's still the case. We still need treatments for these diseases. So, and I work with companies. I've, I've had a couple of companies myself. You know, in fact, one of my medicines as we speak that was discovered in my lab in Trinity, we sold that to a company called Roche. You've got to do it with big drug companies. They, they, they've got the deep pockets to do the trials and stuff. You know, That's now in four trials. Mm. Parkinson's, they're doing a trial in, with our molecule. Now, you can imagine the joy I'm going to feel mm. if they report back to me, it's working. Yeah. Wow. I've said this, actually. I'm, I'll, I'll only be happy if I can go into a pharmacy up in Dunleary and the drug I discovered is available yeah, on the shelf. Wow. That, that'd be the ultimate thrill. Wow. You know. Now, of course, I've also helped drug companies as a consultant help them develop their drugs. So I've done a bit of that, mm. but they weren't the ones I discovered. I'm just, I'm just now, sometimes I say, I'll try that. I might be advising them, but this is my own drug, you know? Yes. So we're waiting now. Us scientists, we're always uneasy. Well, if we're waiting for this trial, we'll know in February, by the way, that'll be the first hint. Okay, so it's oh, yeah, imminent. Yeah, it's phase two, it's called. Oh, wow, and that would be a gift to the world. Can you imagine? And, yeah. and they're, all, they're, doing, they're doing Parkinson's, they're doing heart disease, actually, is the second thing they're going after. Mm. Severe asthma, there's still a subgroup of asthma patients who don't respond to the current meds. That's the third disease they're going after. And then the fourth one is COPD, this lung disease. Yeah. And our drug could work, it's, it's blocking inflammation, you see. And inflammation's at the heart of all those diseases. Mm. So that's why they're trying all four. Now, there's a four one to four chance. If it works in one of them, if it works in more than one, it'll be even better. You know, so mm -hmm. have to wait and see. So, so the joy then comes from curiosity, solving a puzzle, and trying to discover something. Now, my, we've discovered a few interesting things, and then seeing that make a difference to people. Yeah. That, that, that's, that's the trajectory yeah. we're on. And the last part of the joy is telling people about it. Yeah, you know? absolutely. <laughs> well, um, thank you very much for uh, talking to us today. It's been a pleasure. And, you know, I, I said this to you yesterday, but I, thank you for helping us feel safe during the pandemic, because yours you. was one of several reassuring voices when we were very in an uncertain place. And uh, don't forget that. And um, the best of luck with this book and all of your other There's one for everybody in the audience. <laughs> can, you, can you say that nowadays? Oh, <laughs> you have to follow through, Luke. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for Professor Luke O'Neill. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Thanks Fair play to you. Fair play to you. <laughs> Are you signing? Signing?
Yeah, you say that. I was just going to say to Bray here. Oh God, yeah. uh, we have I, Luke's I book for, for sale. <laughs> and Luke is going to hang around and sign a few copies if anyone would like a signed copy. Don't go away because we have Desert Island books at three. Thank you.